This is Fresh Air. I'm David Biancooley, professor of television studies at Rowan University in New Jersey, in for Terry Gross. Singer, arranger, composer, and musician Jeff Muldauer has had a lifelong passion for jazz and blues of the 1920s and 30s. His recordings reinterpreting that music have led many listeners to seek out records from that era. Muldauer was a founding member of the Jim Queskin Jug Band in 1962. That band was together for about six years and inspired people like Jerry Garcia and John Sebastian. After the jug band broke up, Muldauer recorded with his then-wife Maria Muldauer and teamed up with Paul Butterfield to form the band Better Days. Jeff Muldauer has a new two-CD box set titled His Last Letter. It traces his musical influences and includes tunes by Duke Ellington, Bix Beiderbecke, Jelly Roll Morton, and even poems of Tennessee Williams set to music. It's arranged for and recorded with Dutch chamber musicians. Here's the track The Whale Has Swallowed Me by J.B. Lenore from the new CD. They say the whale swallowed Jonah Out in the deep blue sea In the mid-80s, Jeff Muldauer began a long sabbatical from performing, re-emerging in 1999. In 2009, he spoke with Terry Gross and brought his guitar. I'm always interested in hearing how people discover music that isn't the music being played or listened to by their generation. How did you discover early jazz and blues? Well, you know, I'm a kid of the 50s. And actually, it started a little earlier than that for me because my brother had this record collection of uh, 78s and LPs of jazz people. So I used to spend all my time in, in his room after school and listening to Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong and Big Spider Beck and all these great jazz players. And, and in amongst that stuff were little smatterings of country blues. You know, they'd put them on an anthology or something. All of a sudden, there'd be a Lead Belly piece or a Blind Lemon Jefferson piece or a Blind Willie Johnson piece. And they'd go, what is that stuff? You know, it, it was very mysterious to me, the country blues thing. And at that time in America, there wasn't a huge difference in the feeling of things between what I was hearing on the street corner with doo-wop music and, you know, which was so gospel-related. And the pop music at the time, I'm out, you know, as a 13-year-old kid buying Fats Domino and Little Richard. And Jimmy Reed, you know, we're living outside of New York, and we're dancing to Jimmy Reed. So times were very different, and there, was, there were influences coming from all over. Well, you've been generous enough to bring your guitar with you. Um, and... Uh, I'd like you to play 
uh, one, one of the first early jazz or blues songs that you fell in love with that uh, made you really want to seek out more music from that period? Well, I couldn't help but fall in love with Lonnie Johnson. I mean, he was on some of those jazz records with Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. And then uh, my friend uh, Joe Boyd and his brother Warwick and myself went down to Philadelphia, picked him up and brought him up to a party when we were living in Princeton, New Jersey. Well, let's back up a second. He was, what was he doing in Philadelphia? Wasn't he working at a hotel or something? Yeah, he was. I thought he was washing dishes. Uh, Other people said he might have been a cook or something. But he came out of that door with a suit on and his big guitar case, and we took him up to the home of Murray Kempton, who was a journalist, and passed the hat for him. And, uh, you know, we just kept screaming for these blues things, including this tune I'll play a little bit for you called Jelly Roll Baker. Mr. Jelly Roll Baker, let me be your slave. Gave her blows his trumpet, then I'll rise from my grave for some of your sweet jelly roll. Yes, I love your sweet jelly roll. It's good for the sick, yes, and it's good for the old. in a hospital all shot full of holes nurse left a man dying just to get a jelly roll she loved her jelly yeah she loved her sweet jelly roll she'd rather leave a man dying than to miss a sweet jelly roll Oh, that's great. So when you were listening to that as a kid, <laughs> did you know what Jelly Roll, what, what was intended by the word Jelly Roll? <laughs> that's a good question, because I was saying things around the house I was getting trouble in trouble for, and I didn't know, I, mean, I was, hit this stuff so young. Right. <laughs> and especially the Bessie Smith stuff. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I knew by then, at the, and, and uh, that's one of the tunes we were asking for at that party. And, um, you know, double entendre, you know, when you're young. You, you did an album in about 2003 of songs that Big Spiderbeck played on or that were from his period. Um, so these are songs from the late 20s and 30s. And um, in the liner notes, <laughs> in the liner notes to this, you write, In my house, in my father's world of rah-rah Ivy League grads, Bick's lore was common fare. Everyone seemed to have a Bick story about meeting him, drinking with him. And later you write that the trumpeter Muggsy Spanier came to your house and spent time in your brother's room listening to music. How did your family know these people? Well, my brother was out there doing reconnaissance. He was 10 years older than I was. So when he was 18, going into uh, 52nd Street and down to the village, I was eight. So... When he was hunting up these people, and, and my parents loved uh, Dixieland and that kind of music anyway. So they'd go down there to, to Nick's or to Ryan's and these clubs in New York. And, they, you know, when everybody starts having those cocktails and having fun, you meet people. So somehow Muggsy Spanier came out to the house. 
And that was impressive. Were you there? You were there? Oh, I was sitting there listening to him. I remember him talking about kicking his his uh, mute around the room to get individual types of bumps in it so he, his sound would be different than anybody else's. Oh, that's almost and avant-garde. He, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. That's typical of avant-garde. You know, <laughs> keep going back with it. But um, And he also talked about Bix, and I remember that. Just sort of shaking his head, you know, uh, sadly. Your Bix Spiderback record is so much fun. I think I think we should hear a track from it. And uh, this is you singing lead on Take Your Tomorrow and Give Me Today. Um, and uh, do you want to say anything about why you chose to put this on the CD and um, how you arranged it? Well, the original reason for the CD was to do the chamber arrangements of the piano pieces. So they're all on Of the Beiderbecke piano pieces. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, we wanted to spice it up with some some of the old tunes, and we decided to do them uh, in ways that have never been done. In other words, if a male sang the original, then a female could sing this time, or if it was a group effort, it would be a, a single solo effort. So I tried to mix it up per usual. I don't like to try and recreate the sounds of others. I try and sort of uh, get an impression. I guess I'm sort of an impressionist. Okay, so this is um, Jeff Meldauer from his album from about 2003. That's a tribute to Big Spiderback. should I wait for happiness? I've grown impatient more or less. I cannot wait somehow. Show me a bluebird now. Take your tomorrow and give me today. For your tomorrow is too far away. That's Jeff Muldauer from his album Private Astronomy, A Vision of the Music of Big Spiderbeck. Um, that, that's really so much fun to listen to. Um, one of my favorite quotes about you comes from Loudon Wainwright, who said, Jeff Muldauer was and is one of my musical heroes. When I listen to him sing and play, I can hear the coal mine, the cotton field, last but certainly foremost, the boys' boarding school. <laughs> He is such a clever guy, isn't he? So, how did when you were listening um, to blues, you know, when you were young, did you feel a connection to the world of uh, the blues singers, or did you feel like you lived in this very distant world, distant in time and place and class? Well, that's there's a good question. You know, um, I didn't feel comfortable in the world that I knew around me. 
What, what went on? Uh, you know, it was uh, it wasn't the best of childhoods for me. But music was an escape. I don't know that I identified with the world of the musicians that I was listening to, but I identified with some mysterious spirituality that was in there, some feeling. And this is not uncommon. You know, how come a flute player from south side of Chicago named Paul Butterfield picked up the harmonica and became one of the greatest blues harmonica players of all time? So you just don't know who's going to get hit with this kind of feeling or ability. And I'm very grateful I I was hit with a little of it. You wrote a song about looking for Blind Lemon Jefferson's grave. Uh, Blind Lemon Jefferson was one of the great uh, blues performers. So um, the song is about wanting to find his, his grave so you could make sure it was clean. Um, what, what inspired, you actually did this. The song is based on an actual trip that you made. What inspired you to do it? Probably alcohol. (laughs) I mean, I I was up all night in New Orleans as usual. (laughs) I was living down there when I was 18 Uh and hanging out at these crazy places with these crazy people. You know, it was 1961 and things were swinging. And so we were down over at, you know, near the Cafe Du Monde, a little south of there, having some red beans and rice. And I thought about this tune, One Kind Favor I'll Ask of You, Please See That My Grave Is Kept Clean. That's one of his songs. Yeah, yeah. And I goaded these four guys that were with me into cruising around the streets to look for brooms. And we found them, and by... The time the sun was up and, you know, in the morning, we were hitchhiking to East Texas through the bayou country. You know, this is not a recommended trip <laughs> for anybody. <laughs> so I'm here to tell the tale. Uh, it, the first trip ended up in a turnaround, uh, which, is, uh, which I wrote about in the song, Spending the Night in Jail in Lafayette. But uh, I got there eventually. And did you sweep the grave? Of course. They had moved it by the time I got there. But it is a beautiful little graveyard. You know, we found one big graveyard, and we're standing in it. It was all these people with sort of coiffed hair and white belts, and it just didn't feel right. Blind Lemon could not be in this graveyard. And I looked across this field, sort of a floodplain, and there was this little island of dirt that, with little trees on it and then it, you know, and grass and little split rail fence with these scissor tail flycatchers going up and down off of the fence. And I looked over there and I said, he's there, he's got to be there. And we ran across that field and found him and found his mother and his, and his sister. It was beautiful. Who moved his grave? The, some blue society. Good. So as you can tell, from this, it took a few years before I got back there, but I got back there. Well, would you perform some of your song, um, about Line Lemon Jefferson, about looking for the grave? Why, certainly. Thank you. Well, let's see if I can remember this one. <laughs> With my broom in my hand Headed out from Jackson Square With my broom in my hand 
headed out from Jackson Square. I had to get to East Texas, find that graveyard somewhere. Well, down Highway 90, not feeling life again. Well, down Highway 90, not feeling life again. I had one dime in my pocket. I was hungry and I was soaking wet. On like that. It's, it's a nice song. Uh, it's called Got to Find Blind Lemmy Jefferson Part 1, and it's on Jeff Moldauer's album, The Secret Handshake, and he's performing for us today in the studio. So, so how did you get put in prison, which we hear about a little later in the song? Oh, no, 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 no. Just jail. Just for the night. Jail, right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. And, and that happened how? Well, I'll tell you how it happened. I was so cold. It was it was in the high twenties, and I had moccasins on and a and a Martin guitar with me, and I went into a little cop shop on the outside of town, and I asked him if I could stay there. This is gonna be a little hard to believe, but this is what happened. And they said, "Well, you got to get out of here. You can't stay here." And I said, "Look, if I were to run at you, you would then tackle me and arrest me, right? And then you could take me to jail." And they said, this guy's so crazy, let's take him downtown. And they took me downtown and let me sleep up there for the night. So you really so did ask, ask, ask there for, like, you know, a room for a night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's why I even, in the lyric, write it that way. Somebody said, don't write it that way. I said, hey, that's what happened. I asked to get in jail. You just do those two lines for us. Well, let me see. <laughs> Please, Mr. Policeman. Please put me in your jail Well, please, Mr. Policeman Please put me in your jail I got to get me some rest Before I get back on the trail Cause I got to find blind lemon Gotta find blind lemon I got to find blind lemon See that his grave is kept clean Jeff Muldauer performing in the studio in 2009. After a break, we'll continue his interview with Terry Gross, and Justin Chang will review The Gray Man, the new movie starring Ryan Gosling. Meanwhile, here's a track from Jeff Muldauer's new CD set, his arrangement of the Blind Lemon Jefferson song, Black Horse Blues. I'm David Cooley, and this is Fresh Air.
This is Fresh Air. I'm David Bean Cooley, in for Terry Gross. Let's get back to Terry's interview with Jeff Muldauer. He's had a lifelong passion for music of the 20s and 30s. His own recordings, as well as those he made with the Jim Queskin Jug Band and his former wife Maria Muldauer, were inspired by recordings from that era. His new double CD, His Last Letter, traces his musical influences and is arranged for and recorded with chamber musicians in Amsterdam. So you met Jim Queskin and with him formed the Jim Queskin Jug Band. And um, obviously you you found somebody in him who was a a musical kindred spirit. Um, I mean, he's even on the, the new CD, on the Texas Sheiks CD. He sure uh, is. Performing Blues in the Bottle, which is one of the songs he was famous for with the jug band. Why a jug band with literally a jug? Well, I think his friend who, who called himself Bruno Wolf uh, thought about the jug. And, you know, we got Fritz Richmond to, to pick up the jug and, and try it out. And he was so quick to make it fun that... It's sort of, you know, and we used the jug on certain tunes, but he also played washtub bass, and he had a great bass head, and he was a great part singer. And we just used the whole jug band idea as a sort of, uh, you know, a loose and groovy kind of thing. It was just an excuse to do anything we wanted, you know. Um, Sort of like when Terry Gilliam did the Brazil thing, it became an image of some mystical place it bears no real connection you know so this whole idea of a jug band and i guess you may know that i mean all the the folk groups then wore striped shirts and had stage patter and it was very commercial in those days and so the jug band was sort of a precursor of the grateful dead you know but acoustic would you like to play a song that you, you did in the jug band period? Oh, yeah. Let me see here. This is one of the first things I ever did with the jug band, with Jim Queskin jug band. It's called Wild About My Lovin'. Listen here, people About to sing this song Gone to St. Louis And it won't be long Wild about my loving, I like to have my fun. You wanna be a girl of mine, baby, bring it with you when you come. Don't need no sugar 
in my teeth Cause the girl I love sweet enough for me A wild about my loving I like to have my fun You wanna be a girl of mine Baby, bring it with you when you come This is Jeff Moldauer performing in the studio. It must have been amazing performing with the Jug Band in the 60s at a time when probably, like, a lot of the people in the audience were really high. And um, probably some of the people on stage were, too. <laughs> there was there was this sense of kind of community at that time, I think it's fair to say, between performers and audiences that was based in part on liking this music that other people didn't like or didn't know about, and also about sharing in this alternative culture. So can you talk a little bit what it was like for you being a performer in that period? Well, you know, there were two, there were, there were different sets of circumstances. The one you just mentioned was the most common. But we became sort of a, a curiosity piece for television. So we were on a lot of television shows. We'd come out to L.A. We did the, you know, we did the Johnny Carson show. We did the the Steve Allen show. We did three of those, and we'd do all the, you know, whoever was having a weekly variety show like Pat Boone or <laughs> really? Al Hurt. Oh yeah. <laughs> and so we were sort of a curiosity, and um, we sure weren't playing for our compadres in those audiences. And it was really interesting. Uh, they love those those good old chunky, you know, funky things. You know, you'd, you'd get this square audience in a studio in in Burbank, and they were they were just loving it. What well, why, why don't we hear what the band actually sounded like together? Is there a track that you'd particularly like to hear? Well, I, uh, gee, you know, Jimmy and I have been playing recently. And uh, Blues My Naughty Sweetie might be a good one. Oh, that's perfect. Okay, let's hear that. And that's the opening track from, uh, I think the album's just called uh, Drug Band Music. You got it. So so let's hear this. This is Jeff Moldauer with the Jim Queskin Drug Band. There are blues that you get from loneliness. And there are blues that you get from pain. And there are blues when you are lonely For your one and only The blues you can never explain And there are blues That you get from sleepless nights Oh, but the meaning Blues that be They're the blues that I've got on my mind I mean the ones that are the meanest kind They're the blues my naughty sweetie gives to me Let's hear it now the Jim Queskin Jug Band with my guest Jeff Moldauer and uh, Jeff Moldauer is a singer guitarist and arranger um, how did the band split up? Well uh, Jim had been uh, joining a sort of a communal situation on, on Fort Hill in Boston and they were buying up these little houses and fixing them up and the 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 communal, the community he was living in, 
started to be more important to him than singing Vo Do 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 or Razzmatazz songs. So he just decided to break it up. And it it really uh, got to, especially myself and Fritz, I, I sort of thought I was in a band that, for my life. You know, I thought I had signed on for life. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? Because I couldn't, I knew very quickly that I had to learn the craft of music. In in the jug band, everything was done, you know, yakking back and forth across a room laboriously for months on end, coming up with these unique arrangements, which I had a major part in. And I knew I couldn't just take take that out in the world. So I started taking uh, uh, courses over at the Berkeley School of Music, private lessons, and learning how to read and write. You know, it's, it's, it's been very helpful. That's why I get to do arrangements for people and write charts and uh, write documentary film scores and things like that. So, so what looked like a disaster was just the next, you know, it was just one door closes, another one opens. And then all of a sudden, Maria and my, you know, we're making albums with Amos Garrett and, and moving to Woodstock. And our manager, Albert Grossman, is getting us together with people. And then I'm all of a sudden, I'm with Paul Butterfield. And, and life just kept expanding. Yeah, you and Maria Moldauer were married and performed together and did a couple of albums together. Um, do you want to do a song from, from that era of your life? Yeah, I'd love to. This came out of the jug band, but it fit real, really nice with uh, Amos Garrett and his beautiful uh, electric guitar playing. This is called G Baby Ain't I Good to You. me treat you the way that I do Gee baby ain't I good to you Nothing's too good in this world for a girl like you Gee baby ain't I good to you I bought your fur coat for Christmas A diamond ring a Cadillac car Most everything Is love makes me treat you The way that I do Gee baby ain't I good to you And so it goes on like that Very nice <laughs> Jeff Muldauer with his guitar in the studio in 2009. More after a break. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 2009 interview with musician, composer, arranger, and singer Jeff Muldauer, who brought his guitar along. He has a new double CD called His Last Letter, tracing his musical influences. Now, you left music for a few years. How long a hiatus was it? It was about... 17 years. Whoa, <laughs> that's really long. How come? I, I mean, you, you're so passionate about it and so good at it. it. It's the classic 
crash and burn thing, you know, and I'm alive and some of my friends aren't. And I made a great effort to get out of the lifestyle I was in and, and I've continued with that for the last 25 or six years. And, and um, you know, after a while of working in, uh, believe it or not, I was developing software for the steel industry in Detroit, Michigan, when uh, Bob Newerth came to visit me, an old friend of mine, and he was in town recording Patti Smith. And he came up to my office, and I had programmers and analysts and a fancy suit on, and I was making money. And he wasn't impressed. <laughs> he said, do you think anybody else can do this? And I went, well, I guess so, Bob. He said, you hear anybody out there playing music the way you play music? Well, I don't know. I guess not, Bob. <laughs> it was one of those. <laughs> and he dragged me over to Italy that fall. And that's when I got the bug again. I said, you know what? I'm not knocking these northern Italians silly, but I love this. And I started practicing. And that's when I came up with the wild ox moan. And You know, I just, I got, I got bit again. And I've been having the greatest time ever since. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like for you to perform some of the wild ox moan. Maybe you can tell us about it before we hear it. The reason why I want you to do this, you go into this kind of like blues falsetto in it, which is almost like a blues yodel. I do. Um, but it's, it's something that the, the writer of this tune, if she did write it, because it's so different. I, I almost can't believe anybody wrote it. Her name was Vera Hall, and she was a school teacher from uh, outside of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And she recorded at the Library of Congress in the late 30s for the low maxes, I guess. And she had these little cracks she'd do in her voice. She did it with a few tunes, and she did the Bow Weevil, and she did children's songs. And she and I heard her when I was... She was one of those tunes that was, uh, you know, on one of those jazz anthologies. You know, mo, 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 these little things like that. And I just, I took to her. So I arranged... Uh, what was an a cappella tune for the guitar and came up with this thing of the wild ox moan. Cause that's where I belong 
Well, that is where I belong Nice. <laughs> really good. Thank you so much for doing that. That's Wild Ox Moan. My guest is guitarist and singer and arranger Jeff Moldauer. So um, do you feel that um, age and experience is... If, like changing your taste at all in music, like the, the, not, not necessarily what you want to listen to, but what you want to perform or arrange. I, it is getting that way. In other words, I do have plans to move away from the vocal because I'm a second tenor and you can't sing like this forever. Although it just, I'm singing in the same keys I did when I was in the jug band when I was 19. So the same tunes and the same keys. So I'm very, very lucky. But it's a knock wood. And my chamber arrangements, I'm just as happy other people would sing some of the, the stuff I've put to, to chamber music, the Tennessee Williams poems, etc. Um, so I'm, I'm planning in a more classical way. Uh, my model being Giuseppe Verdi, you know, because he didn't, you know, his greatest operas were written at the age of 70 plus, you know. So I got a lot of ideas and a lot of things I want to do, but digging down and shouting the blues, you, you can't do that forever. Jeff Muldauer, thanks so much. Thank you. Jeff Muldauer visiting Terry Gross in 2009. He has a new two-CD set called His Last Letter, which reflects and revisits his musical and inspirational influences. Let's hear one more sample from Jeff Muldauer's new CD set. This is Heavenly Grass from a poem by Tennessee Williams. My feet took a walk in heavenly grass all day while the sky shone clear as glass Well, my feet took a walk in heavenly grass all night while the lonesome stars rolled past.
Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new Ryan Gosling movie, The Gray Man. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. In the new action thriller The Gray Man, Ryan Gosling plays a freelance assassin who finds himself targeted by the CIA. The movie, which also stars Chris Evans and Ana de Armas, opens in theaters this week and begins streaming July 22nd on Netflix. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. If you've missed seeing Ryan Gosling in movies, and I certainly have, you'll be pleased to know that his recent hiatus from acting is now over. He has several new projects on the horizon, the most attention-grabbing of which will surely be the live-action Barbie movie, in which he plays a real-life Ken doll. That doesn't come out until next summer. I hope it turns out better than his latest movie, The Gray Man, in which Gosling plays an assassin being chased all over the globe by other assassins. That sounds exciting, but it isn't. It's a pile-up of snarky, self-admiring one-liners and insanely violent but weirdly inconsequential action scenes. Nice as it is to have Gosling back, he deserves a better star vehicle than this. The movie was adapted from the first in a series of novels by Mark Graney, a protege of the late Tom Clancy, and it wades in the same murky, conspiracy-minded waters as Clancy's fiction. It begins with Gosling's character in prison for murder, though we're assured that the crime was well-deserved. He's visited by Donald Fitzroy, a grizzled CIA veteran played by a fine Billy Bob Thornton, speaking of actors we don't see enough in movies anymore. Fitzroy offers to get him out of jail if he becomes a contract killer for the agency's top-secret Sierra program, someone to whom they can outsource the really dirty work. Cut to several years later, and Gosling's character, now known as Sierra Six, is very, very good at that work. One day, Six is given a seemingly routine assignment in Bangkok, but the mission goes horribly wrong, and he himself becomes the CIA's next target. And so he flees, making his way from Thailand to Turkey to the Czech Republic and beyond, with a much-coveted computer drive in his possession. He has allies, including the now-retired Fitzroy, and another CIA alum, played by the great Alfre Woodard. Anna de Armas, so memorable in the recent James Bond caper No Time to Die, also swoops in as an up-and-coming agent who decides to join Six and expose corruption in the agency ranks. But that isn't easy, especially when the CIA brings in Lloyd Hansen, an expert killer and torturer who knows no boundaries when it comes to the fine art of asset retrieval. Lloyd is played by a gleefully unhinged Chris Evans, who seems to be enjoying his liberation from the heroics of Captain America. Some of Lloyd's tactics include kidnapping a chronically ill teenager for blackmail purposes and ripping out someone's fingernails with pliers. In this action scene, Six and Lloyd finally meet face to face. Hey, sunshine. Mm, you must be Lloyd. What gave it away? The white pants, the trash dash. It just. It leans Lloyd. Where's the drive? Got it here somewhere. It's just hard to see. Is that in? Just to make clear what happens at the end of that scene, instead of giving up the drive, Six drops a live grenade, forcing him and Lloyd to run and send themselves crashing through windows completely unharmed before it explodes. 
The movie has a lot of big, noisy set pieces like that, the most destructive of which finds a runaway train demolishing what must be half the city of Prague. But for the most part, the action is so murkily shot and frenetically edited that it all feels weightless, with none of the genuine thrills you get from, say, the last few Mission Impossible pictures. The Gray Man was directed by the brothers Joe and Anthony Russo, known for their work on Marvel blockbusters like Avengers Endgame. They're comedy directors by temperament. Their past TV credits include Arrested Development and Community. And they try to give the proceedings here some bounce, mainly by having the characters swap cheeky quips, even when they're getting stabbed multiple times mid-combat. But the mix of comic breeziness and over-the-top violence never gels. In spite of all this, Gosling remains good company, whether he's jumping out of burning planes or rigging underwater explosives. This isn't the first time he's played a handsome cipher who happens to be very skilled at killing people, as he did in arty thrillers like Drive and Only God Forgives. And he makes six enough of an intriguingly unknown quantity to keep you watching. But a lot of the other actors don't fare as well. Reggae Jean Page of Bridgerton fame and Jessica Henwick from The Matrix Resurrections are wasted in some tedious corporate CIA drama. Probably the most exciting supporting player here is the popular Indian actor and musician Danush, who gets to unleash some deadly moves as one of Lloyd's henchmen. No less than Gosling, he, too, deserves better than this. Justin Chang is the film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed The Gray Man, starring Ryan Gosling. On Monday's show, the writer and composer of the Tony and Pulitzer Prize-winning musical The Strange Loop, Michael R. Jackson. He describes his show as a musical about a young black gay musical theater writer named Usher who works as an usher at a Broadway show. Jackson started writing it when he was working as an usher at the Broadway show The Lion King. Hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. For Terry Gross, I'm David B. Coolen. <laughs>